You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 265, Arnold's Treason Revealed. So last time we left off with General Benedict Arnold planning to hand over West Point, its garrison, and possibly even General Washington himself to the British, in exchange for £20,000 and a general's commission in the regular army. In 1780, Major John Andre was serving as the adjutant general of the British Army and as its chief spymaster. I've discussed Andre's career in many past episodes, but it's worth a quick review. Andre was born in 1751 to a Huguenot family living in London. His father was a merchant from Switzerland, his mother was from Paris. His family was rather wealthy, and Andre received a top-notch education in London and Geneva. At age 20, he joined the army, buying a lieutenant's commission in the regular army. After spending several years on his own in Europe, he caught up with his regiment in Canada in 1774. The following year, American rebels, led by General Richard Montgomery in a joint attack with Colonel Benedict Arnold, attempted to capture Quebec City. Almost the entire British army in Canada at that time was taken prisoner, Lieutenant Andre among them. Andre was sent as a prisoner of war to be held in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where he lived in a private house on parole. A year later, he was freed in a prisoner exchange and promoted to captain. He served as an aide to Major General Charles Noflince Gray on the Philadelphia campaign and was present at Brandywine, the Paoli Massacre, and Germantown. Andre famously organized the massive party in Philadelphia for General Howe's return to London. After that, he became aide-de-camp to General Henry Clinton, a deputy adjutant general, and he also received a promotion to major. In 1779, Andre became adjutant general for the entire British Army in North America, and also its head of intelligence. In 1780, in this role, Andre organized the logistics for the British siege and capture of Charleston, South Carolina. Although his military career was rather rapid, and perhaps because of it, many of Andre's fellow officers resented him. Although he came from a wealthy family, his family money came from merchants, not landed nobility. His parents weren't even British. Andre's relatively speedy rise through the ranks came not through bravery on the battlefield, but more through ingratiating himself to powerful men and using his administrative skills. Men who spent decades in the ranks as lieutenants or captains were not particularly happy taking orders from a 20-something major with no real experience leading troops in combat and with no family pedigree to explain his rapid rise. It didn't help that Andre wrote a report for General Clinton on looting by British soldiers. Many of Andre's loyalist friends encouraged him to write the report. 
Clinton also received the report favorably, but for many field officers who had to deal with the realities of soldiers who fought in poverty and really only had any opportunities through plundering during wartime, the report came across as someone out of touch with the realities of warfare. Much of Andre's notoriety came from his ability to write humorous plays and poems enjoyed by his fellow officers. He was popular and an entertainer and party guest, but not really respected as a military leader. His party for General Howe in Philadelphia became legendary among officers, but also a disgusting example of excess for many others. Andre was also known as a ladies' man. While in British-occupied Philadelphia, this young, handsome, and exciting officer caught the eye of many young women, including a 17-year-old daughter of a Philadelphia Loyalist family named Peggy Shippen. Although there is no evidence that they ever had a physical relationship or that Andre ever saw it as more than a flirtation, the two did continue to correspond after the British Army abandoned Philadelphia and returned to New York. When Peggy Shippen married American General Benedict Arnold a few months later, she served as the perfect person to introduce the two enemy officers. After Andre and Clinton returned from Charleston in July of 1780, Andre was eager to score another big win. If he was primarily responsible for the capture of West Point, it would likely mean promotion to lieutenant colonel and also improve the respect of his fellow officers for his military value. After several failed attempts to meet with Arnold to finalize plans that I discussed in the last episode, Andre made one final attempt to meet on September 20th. Clinton had been reluctant to let Andre meet with Arnold for fear that Andre would be captured as a spy. When Clinton finally agreed to the plan, he told Andre to avoid three things. First, he should not go behind enemy lines. Andre and Arnold should meet in Westchester County, which was no man's land, or on a British ship on the river. Second, he should not disguise himself, but should remain in uniform at all times. Third, he must not carry any compromising papers that would give the enemy evidence that he was engaged in espionage. Andre set off aboard the Vulture, arriving at a point about 15 miles downriver from West Point. When Arnold was a no-show, he sent a note in his own handwriting, which Arnold would recognize, sent under a flag of truce to General Arnold, stating that Colonel Robinson needed to meet with him. Arnold sent a courier back to the ship, granting a pass to John Anderson, which was the name Andre had been using to correspond with Arnold. Andre did not receive the courier until late on the 21st. Major Andre then broke Clinton's first rule by getting into the courier's boat and traveling behind enemy lines at night. At last, though, Andre and Arnold met in person near a grove of fir trees along the shore of the river. By this time, it was past midnight into the morning of September 22nd. There were no other witnesses to their conversation, but Arnold later recounted that Andre brought word that the amount of money the British were prepared to offer him was less than he wanted, but that Andre gave his word that he would try to help him get more. Arnold had also brought sketches of West Point defenses and information about the garrison. Andre took these documents, breaking General Clinton's second rule. As dawn approached, 
Arnold tried to help Andre return to his ship. The men who had rowed him upriver could not be found. A local man named Joshua Smith had accompanied Andre to the meeting site. Smith was of questionable loyalties and probably liked it that way since he lived in the no-man's land between the two armies. Arnold suggested that the men return to Smith's house where they could take cover until the next night. Still in his British uniform, Andre returned to the home where the men had breakfast. While there, they heard cannon fire from the river. The Americans brought down artillery to fire on the vulture, which by this time had been anchored in the river for two days. After exchanging fire for nearly two hours, the damaged vulture eventually retreated downriver back toward British lines. At this point, Arnold decided that he needed to return home. He wrote out passes that would allow Andre to pass through any American lines. The hope was that he could move downriver and catch up with the vulture at Dobbs Ferry. Arnold had left with the intention that Smith would row Andre downriver after it got dark, hopefully avoiding any American patrols. But he left passes just to be certain Andre would not be stopped. Smith, however, decided they needed to ride to the ferry on horseback. Smith gave Andre a civilian coat and hat in order to avoid being seen in uniform. Andre was reluctant, but felt he had no choice but to break General Clinton's third rule. Later, several witnesses reported seeing Smith, Andre, and a servant riding downriver. Smith stopped to speak with Major John Burroughs of the New Jersey Line and Colonel James Livingston. It was Livingston's cannon that fired on the vulture. Neither officer asked about Smith's quiet companion and allowed the men to continue on their way. A few miles further down the road, a group of New York militiamen stopped the riders and demanded to see their papers. Smith provided them with Arnold's passes. The militia offered to put the riders up for the night, warning them that cowboys were in the area, making it dangerous to travel at night. Cowboys was the term used for men who lived in this no-man's land and who took advantage of lawlessness to rob travelers and locals when the opportunity arose. Reluctantly, Smith and Andre spent a few sleepless hours in a strange bed, with their clothes on, ready to run at a moment's notice. Before dawn, they were up again and on the move. Now, Andre thought they were finally past the American lines, when another New York militia captain stopped them and demanded their passes. Once again, General Arnold's passes worked, and the men continued on their way. A short time later, yet another officer stopped them, this time, Andre thought the gig was up. The officer was Colonel Samuel Batchley Webb, an officer who had recently been released as a prisoner of war. Colonel Webb had been on parole in New York City for years and knew Andre by sight. Andre recognized Colonel Webb instantly, but Webb did not take a close look at the men in the civilian coats, and he let them pass. Having passed all the American checkpoints, Smith decided it was time for him to turn back. He was concerned about coming into contact with a British checkpoint. He told Andre to continue down the road that he was only a few miles from the British lines. Andre continued riding for a few miles, and another group of men jumped out of the woods and took the reins of his horse. Andre could see the British lines just ahead. One of the men who grabbed him was wearing the coat of a Hessian Jaeger. 
Andre addressed the men. Gentlemen, I hope you belong to our party. The leader responded, What party? Andre rejoined, The lower party, which was a reference to loyalists. The men pointed their guns at him and responded, We are Americans. Andre then offered them his gold watch to allow him to pass, but the men refused, demanding all of his money. Andre showed him Arnold's pass, but the men were not impressed. They ordered him off of his horse and into the woods, where they forced him to strip. The men went through his clothing, looking for hidden money, and finally they found the documents that he had put in his boots. After allowing him to dress, the men took him to the nearest American outpost, commanded by Colonel John Jameson. Jameson wrote out a letter about the capture of the suspected spy and sent it along with the captured documents to General Arnold back in West Point. While Andre was with Colonel Jameson, Major Benjamin Talmadge, the Continental Army's head of intelligence, just happened to stop there in Newcastle. Talmadge immediately suspected that Arnold was part of the plot and said the letter and documents should go directly to General Washington, who was on his way to meet with Arnold. But Colonel Jameson outranked Talmadge and insisted that Arnold be informed. Talmadge did, however, convince Jameson to move Andre to a secure location rather than sending him directly to Arnold. Talmadge also had Jameson send a courier directly to find General Washington and inform him of the capture. By this time, it was the morning of the 24th. Washington was due to arrive at Arnold's residence at Beverly Mansion near West Point. Arnold was having breakfast with several of his officers when a messenger arrived. The message was the letter from Colonel Jameson informing General Arnold that he had detained a man calling himself John Anderson who was headed to the British lines with a pass signed by Arnold. The letter also informed Arnold that the papers in the man's possession had been forwarded to General Washington. Arnold quickly excused himself from breakfast, went upstairs to speak with Peggy. Arnold told his wife that Andre had been captured and that incriminating papers were on their way to General Washington. Arnold was going to have to flee for his life. He left Peggy behind, telling her to burn all of his papers and to stall for time. A couple of minutes later, a knock came on the bedroom door. A servant informed Arnold that Washington's servant had arrived at the front door, informing him that the general would be at the house any moment. Arnold left the home in a hurry, informing his officers that he had to ride over to West Point and would return in an hour. Arnold then rode directly to the docks and told his rowers that he would give them two gallons of rum if they could get him downriver to Stony Point and then back in time to meet with Washington. The rowers sped Arnold down to Stony Point. Along the way, Arnold passed an American patrol boat, shouting to the captain to inform Washington that he would be back shortly. When his bateau reached Stony Point, Arnold told the men to row further downriver to the Vulture. Upon boarding the Vulture, Arnold told the British crew to take his two American rowers as prisoners of war. Moments after Arnold departed his home, Washington's retinue arrived. The messenger that Jameson had sent to inform Washington had not managed to find his party, so Washington was still planning on a quiet day inspecting West Point defenses with one of his top generals. 
Washington sent ahead the servant to announce his arrival. Major Franks sent a message from the house with apologies that breakfast was not ready, that Mrs. Arnold was sick, and that General Arnold had gone over to West Point. With that, Washington crossed over the river to go directly to West Point himself. He was surprised that there was no cannon salute for his arrival and that Arnold was nowhere to be found. He was also surprised to find the fort's defenses in disarray after Arnold had assured him that he had put everything in order. After about two hours, Washington returned to Arnold's home to see if he could figure out what was going on. Just after he arrived at the Beverly Mansion, Jameson's messenger finally arrived with the letter and the incriminating documents. Washington took one look at them and realized there was a serious problem. He ordered Hamilton to go find Arnold and bring him in. Washington then moved into a dressing room where he spread out the papers on a table. As he came to realize the extent of the plot, he sat there trembling. He told General Knox, Arnold has betrayed me. Whom can we trust now? Several hours later, Colonel Hamilton returned to the home with the news that General Arnold had boarded the British ship Vulture and was headed back to British lines. Arnold wrote a letter to Washington, which Hamilton delivered. In it, Arnold claimed that his wife Peggy was completely ignorant of his actions, as were his aides, Colonel Varick and Major Franks, as well as Joshua Smith, who had accompanied Andre through most of his attempted escape. Arnold asked that Washington allow Peggy either to join him in New York or to return her to her parents in Philadelphia. He also asked Washington to send along his clothing and personal baggage to New York. It's unclear if Arnold's attempted exoneration of Peggy held any weight, but Peggy was putting on her own act to save her skin. Before Washington's arrival, Peggy ran through the house in her nightgown with her hair disheveled, screaming at the top of her lungs. The first person to find her was Colonel Richard Varick. Colonel Varick was a longtime aide of General Arnold. Varick had been an aide to General Philip Schuyler, and when Schuyler lost his command after the fall of Fort Ticonderoga in 1777, Arnold had taken on Varick as an aide. Because Varick had been so close to Schuyler, Schuyler's replacement, General Horatio Gates, requested that Arnold discharge Varick, and Arnold's refusal to do so was the beginning of the rift between those two generals. So a result of all this was that Varick remained loyal to General Arnold, but after Arnold lost his position as military commander of Pennsylvania, Varick's military career also faded. He returned to his civilian legal practice in New Jersey, but when Arnold took command in West Point, Varick happily joined him there once again. Varick was living in Arnold's home and was a very close aide to the general and his family. On the morning of the 24th, Varick had enjoyed breakfast with General Arnold just before his abrupt departure. Now he faced this raving woman. Upon seeing Varick, Peggy dropped to her knees and begged him to spare her baby. Varick still had no idea what was going on. Soon, Arnold's other close aide, Major David Franks, and the fort physician, Dr. Eustace, also arrived. The three men forcibly took Peggy back to her bedroom. Peggy continued to rave that she would never see her husband again, that the spirits had carried him away and put hot irons in his head. 
After Washington arrived at the home, Peggy demanded to see him. The men led Washington up to the room where Peggy shrieked that he was not General Washington. He was a man who was going to help Verrett kill her baby. A disconcerted Washington quickly retreated from the room, unsure how to handle a hysterical woman. The following day, Peggy met with Hamilton and Lafayette, asking if she could get a pass to leave with her baby. Washington offered to send her to her husband in New York City or to her father in Philadelphia. Peggy chose Philadelphia, and this convinced the men that she was not a part of Arnold's treason, and I think they were just happy to get rid of this crazy woman. With Peggy out of the way, Washington now had to figure out the extent of this conspiracy and what needed to be done for damage control. And we'll get to that next time when we discuss the fallout of Arnold's treason in an episode that tellingly is called Hanging Major Andre. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks, as always, to my Patreon supporters at the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Gaylord, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters Lee Seam, Michael Mulhern, and TJ Walker. Welcome also to new supporters at the Standard Bearer level, Ethan Walker, Matt Van Arnhem, Alia Moses, and Christopher Davis. You guys will get the first of your monthly magnets this month. All of my supporters at the Standard Bearer level or higher get a magnet each month with a different flag from the American Revolution. Thanks also to William Turcote for a one-time gift via PayPal. I accept one-time gifts if you don't want to make an ongoing contribution via PayPal and Venmo. I've got a few upcoming events that might interest you. On Tuesday, February 21st, 2023, I will host a Zoom meeting with Professor Woody Holton, author of the book Liberty is Sweet. This event is co-sponsored by the American Revolution Roundtable and the American Revolution Authors Congress. For those of you who have participated in past Zoom events, this one's going to be a little different. Our speaker will start at 7 p.m. Eastern Time as normal, but we will start the Zoom meeting at 6.30 to give people a chance to chat with me and each other before the main speaker starts. I hope you can join us. Also, the American Revolution Authors Congress is going to hold a live event at Washington's Crossing in Pennsylvania on Saturday, April 15th. Uh, There's going to be multiple speakers, mostly authors, although I will also be speaking. 
we were able to get sponsors to cover the cost of the event, so it's going to be free for anyone who wants to come and listen. If you're anywhere in the area and can make it that day, please make plans to join us live and in person at Washington's Crossing, April 15th. Also, on Saturday, May 20th, I will be one of several speakers, many speakers, at History Camp Valley Forge. This is going to be a great event. There are also associated tours of the Philadelphia area on Friday and on Sunday after the event. So come to Valley Forge and plan to make it a long weekend. You can find details about all of these events on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. I will also send out details to everyone on my mailing list. So if you're not on my mailing list already, you can join through the link that is also on my website. This week was part two of a trilogy of episodes covering Benedict Arnold's decision to betray his country and join the British Army. For me, this is one of the most stunning stories of the war. One of the highest-ranking military leaders of the Continental Army simply goes over to the enemy and becomes a top military leader for the other side. It's almost unprecedented. What I also find interesting is how little it mattered in the end. Typically, when you see those kinds of high-level defections in a rebellion or civil war, it means that the movement looks lost and that leaders are looking to cut their own personal losses. Arnold must have felt that way, but his example did not lead to any other defections, and of course the Americans went on to win the war anyway, so it really was a huge miscalculation on Arnold's part. But for those living through the events, they had no idea that's the way it was going to turn out. Washington and other top leaders seemed to be in an understandable near state of panic when they figured out what was happening. Much of this week's episode also covered Major John Andre, who was really an up-and-coming officer in the British Army. He was pretty young, still in his 20s at this time. Had he lived, he very likely would have become a general. As with many officers who moved rapidly through the ranks, Andre did take risks. This was one of them, and it did not pay off. But until his end, we see him playing in many important roles near the top of British military leadership in America. My book recommendation this week is an older one that covers the wartime efforts of both Arnold and Andre. It's called The Traitor and the Spy, Benedict Arnold and John Andre, by James Flexner. As I said, this is an older book, first published in 1953 but it takes a look at the wartime struggles of both men with particular focus on the events leading to Arnold's defection and Andre's execution. The author, James Flexner, is a well-known author and historian, probably best known for his biographies of George Washington. He passed away about 20 years ago. As I said, this is an older book, but you can still buy a copy. There is also a copy available to borrow on archive.org. My online recommendation is an even older book by one of the eyewitnesses to the events I discussed today. I mentioned Joshua Smith, the man who tried to lead Andre back to the British lines after he met with Arnold. The Continentals arrested and released Smith, but he was then imprisoned by New York officials as a suspected loyalist. Smith escaped from prison and made his way to British-occupied New York City. He remained there for the rest of the war and then evacuated with the army at the end of the war and traveled to London. After living in London for many years, 
Smith decided to return to his home in New York in 1801. He was able to reestablish a legal practice, but he never really returned to any prominence. In 1809, Smith wrote a book describing his personal experience in the events during the war. The book is called An Authentic Narrative of the Causes Which Led to the Death of Major Andre, Adjutant General of His Majesty's Forces in North America. Now, of course, there's some bias since it was written by a man trying to live in America after playing a role in helping the most infamous traitor in American history. But it is still a valuable eyewitness account of events. A copy of the book is available on archive.org, and as always, I've included links on my blog and website. My question this week asks, was the tax on tea that led to the Boston Tea Party and the Revolutionary War fair enough because it was supposed to repay Britain for defending the U.S., by which he means the British colonies in America, during the French and Indian War. Tea protests were not really about the money. In fact, had the tea tax been successful, it probably wouldn't have raised enough money to cover the costs of the customs officers and officials who were paid to enforce it. It wasn't going to cover anything close to the costs incurred by the British in capturing Canada from the French during the prior war. The tax was a nominal amount designed to set a precedent in America that such taxes were constitutional. Parliament insisted that it had this authority. Colonial leaders argued that it did not. The underlying issue was that if Parliament could impose whatever taxes it wanted, even small ones, that would set a precedent for larger ones down the road, which would eventually bankrupt the colonies. So, colonial leaders did not want to set that precedent. Parliament was in debt following the Seven Years' War, and this did include expenses from the French and Indian War in America. So, members in London believed that taxing the colonies was appropriate. Had they tried to work out a method which would give the colonies some control over the taxation, it might have been successful but trying to enforce an outside tax on the colonists without their consent was not acceptable. Imagine how Americans would feel today if the UN attempted to impose a small tax in order to cover peacekeeping costs that maybe even benefited U.S. citizens. I don't think that would go over very well either. Nobody likes to pay taxes, in any circumstances, but people find them especially odious when they're imposed by a body over which the people have no control. Officials in London, of course, held a very different view. They believed Parliament could levy taxes throughout the British Empire without restriction. They saw colonial resistance as the first step toward independence. Implementation of a direct tea tax came at the same time that Britain had removed a great many indirect taxes on tea. Officials hoped that colonists would be happy with the overall reduced taxes, while accepting this nominal direct tax. As we know, the colonists felt differently. So the fight over the tea tax had much less to do with money than it had to do with power and how much the colonists were going to have over their own future. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me, either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. I also want to mention that I've created a new subreddit on Reddit called AmRev podcast. So if you want to chat with me there or shoot me questions in Reddit, I've got my presence there and you're welcome to reach out to me there. 
Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. When a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts.